Your ears do not deceive you. You've just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. This is Byron Neal. Welcome you to another episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner podcast from Comic Book Yeti. Hoping to help keep you warm during the holiday season, I've got comics writer Matt Groom hanging out with me today to talk about his project Inferno Girl Red, although Matt probably doesn't need to worry too much about staying warm there in Australia during his summer months. It is nice and toasty down here, I assure you, even this early in the morning. Well, Inferno Girl Red. So those that are just getting kind of on the train and weren't backers of the Kickstarter, this is being essentially re-released in January of 2023 as a double-length three-part miniseries with Image. So let's give listeners kind of the quick pick for the project. Tell me what it's about. Yeah, so Inferno Girl Red is about a girl called Cassia. Uh, and she's moving to a new city because of a great opportunity she's got to attend a new school. Uh, but she's a little worried about it. She's a pretty pessimistic girl because of her life and and some of the things that happened to her mother. Um, but she's very determined to make the most of this one chance that she's got. Unfortunately, soon after she gets there, the entire city is ripped out of existence and thrown into darkness. And she is one of the only people who can do anything about it when a magical bracelet rockets into her life and gives her the chance to become Inferno Go Red. But because the power is tied to belief and that's not necessarily her natural mode, she has to find a way to connect with that uh, and also connect with a secret legacy, maybe even protect a family on the way to trying to save the city. Uh, anyway. Well, this is as I understand it, kind of part of Image's Massive Verse, which is kind of a, a superhero universe launch with in association with Radiant Black, um, which is something you kind of cooked up with Kyle Higgins and Ryan Parrott. So how, how did all this come to be? Yeah, the, the creation of the Massive Verse is an interesting one because all of the projects, especially sort of the first three being Radiant Black, Inferno Go Red, and Rogue Sun, all, uh, they started out as independent projects. We were all working on them ourselves um, and uh, because it, it's Images Creator and they're all very personal projects. We're all putting a lot of ourselves into them. But it was pretty early in the piece when uh, some conversations between Kyle and uh, Eric, the, the publisher at Image, got us to considering what if this was a shared universe. And this it was something that we were all a little hesitant on in some ways at first, I think, because part of the what's so incredible about Image is it being creator-owned, about having no and no one's telling you what to do. It's entirely your responsibility and your freedom to create the book you want to create. And in some ways, tying it into other books, it it, it can tie you down in some way. Suddenly, there's other considerations other than just like make the book that you want to make. Uh, but we also quickly saw the opportunity, and I think. We, we've all engaged in working for major publishers and like, it's great. And they're characters that we love, but I think we've also seen some of the limitations that comes from working with or working for a giant corporation with a, like a lot of moving parts. And we couldn't help but think about what might happen if we had a go at doing a create your own, create your own shared universe. Like how far could we push the idea what would that be like? Like if we did crossovers, like what's a crossover outside of the typical commercial considerations? Um, what can we do with the medium? And it was just so exciting to us. And we wanted to take it for a spin because it hasn't like 
really been anything like this outside of the early days of Image. And even right. then it was, you know, it, like their intentions, it never really came together necessarily in the uh, most cogent way. And there have been other creators who have sort of created their own empire and then invited other people in. But this is very much all of us. We're all in charge of our own thing, but we're just like finding ways to thread it together and finding ways to build this um, this big project with the core idea being what should superior comics be in the future? Like what can we do to break away from the conventions of the past and do something entirely fresh when there aren't those limitations on us? Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, the our, our driving force and, you know, we're figuring out as we go along, but I'm very happy with how it's gone so far. So is there a way to talk about how Inferno Girl Red is going to fit in without spoilers at this point? Yeah. yeah. In fact, Inferno Girl Red actually appeared first in terms of publishing in Supermassive, which was a crossover that we did last year. Uh, and that was actually set a little ahead in uh, Cassia's timeline. So in Inferno Girl Red Book One, which is coming out publicly very, very soon, that's the origin of Cassia's sort of superhero journey. But we got to see a little flash forward uh, of that into Supermassive. And I think that's the plan going forward is for us to have relatively self-contained experiences. But then every year you'll have these Supermassive crossovers where different combinations of characters from the Massiveverse will meet each other. And there are other smaller threads, but it was also very important to us that this idea of connectivity never impacted the reading experience. Because when we talk about like what do we want from a superhero universe, one of the things we don't want is for a book to find its own feet and then get derailed six issues later by a massive line-wide crossover that if you're into the crossover, great, but if you're not, then it's you know ruined everything for you. So all of the books, when you collect them, you get volume one, two, three, four. It's very straightforward. But if you want to add to that experience and feel some connected tissue, then you can pick up the Supermassive each year and sort of feel how they connect together a bit more. I love that conceptually because it's so hard for me sometimes with the big two, especially where I sort of get lost because I'm not a regular reader, let's say, of every single X title out there. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's something we were very conscious of. Uh, even with Inferno Gred, for example, one of the reasons it came to be was gosh, many years at this point, years ago at this point, I was in a, uh, like a forum for my local comic book shop and someone was asking, saying like, oh, my daughter is really into superheroes. What's a good trade or graphic novel to give her to start off with? And I really struggled with that because I think Miss Marvel is great, like absolutely incredible character. But from issue one, it's very tied into all of the inhuman stuff. And then after that, it sort of resets and the numbering resets and following the volume can be tricky. Uh, and then I thought back to Ultimate Spider-Man, which I think is another like really great example. And I sort of grabbed it off my shelf and had to flip through. And it's like, this is like still great comics, but it's also 20 years old now and it feels like it. And I'm not sure if it'll like have the same effect on someone who's young as it did for me at the time. Sure. Uh, and I, was, I, I just got a little disheartened, I guess, that in my view, and I think it's changing a little bit now, but the major publishers weren't, especially at that point, providing clear entryways for YA readers who are like the future of the medium. For sure. Um, outside of some kind of esoteric 
uh, side projects. So with this, it was always like consideration number one is if you've never encountered a comic before, can you follow this clearly? Can you go into a bookstore and pick up one and then pick up two and then pick up three and be fine? And that's, yeah, that's going to trump everything, I think, in our consideration as we build this stuff out. Awesome. Well, I've read a major influence on you and Inferno Girl, which is quite clear, is as a love of the tokusatsu. Um, so kind of those for unfamiliar, it's a live action Japanese TV or film drama with a shit ton of special effects. <laughs> it's kind of a, a live action analog to anime. So the influences on the story are are really clear. But talk to me about how kind of the what the genesis was of your infatuation with this specific type of storytelling. Yeah, well, I think I was introduced to Tokusatsu in the same way that I suspect many, many people in my generation were, consciously or not, uh, and that was through Power Rangers. Uh, Power Rangers is a show that's almost exactly 50% Tokusatsu in that they take a Japanese television show called Super Sentai, yep. and then they, they get that footage, they cut out all of the Japanese people uh, when they're not in suits, and then they replace that with footage of Americans. So you're really watching half of an original Japanese program and then half of new footage from Americans. And of course, I didn't know that at the time, but uh, it once I learned that, I sort of dove into Super Sentai and then from there, Kamen Rider uh, and that whole world. And it's actually kind of how, or the, it very much is the reason I'm in comics, because I do a Power Rangers podcast I have for a sort of 10 years now almost. Uh, and it was through that that I started talking to Kyle, who uh, was writing the Power Rangers comic from Boom at the time. And we were doing a sort of director's commentary style uh, regular podcast with him. And then we started chatting about story. And he could tell that I was really passionate about storytelling generally, because that's also part of my day job currently. Uh, and he said, have you ever wanted to write comics? And I said, well, absolutely. I just didn't want to be that friend who like bugs his comic writer friend for opportunities. Uh, so he asked me to write a script to sort of like see what I've got. And I wrote a 22-page script. And he's like, oh, this is great. I want to edit it and take it to publishers. And I thought it was just like a test script. I didn't really conceive it as a series necessarily, but I wasn't going to say no to that. Yeah. Uh, and that was actually what became Self-Made, which was my first image series. Okay. And then I was off to the races. But uh, since then, I've written a little bit of Power Rangers Comics of Boom. Uh, Kyle and I are three miniseries and counting deep into our Ultraman run, um, working with Super Raya Productions and Marvel. Ultraman obviously being almost like the Tokusatsu series in some ways in terms of being a progenitor. Uh, so like I've in weird ways had it very tied into my life, but I also think it's a really valuable place to look at when considering storytelling because they approach superheroes in a different way. Uh, I think because I think that one of the things that can frustrate me about Western superheroes is that they are champions of the status quo. If something goes wrong, they fix it and then it's back to how things were. And that's fine in a great society, but if we're living in a world in which I think we are, in which most people aren't championed by the status quo, if, if, they're, if they're not being served by that, then suddenly those superheroic attempts to make sure nothing changes becomes a little bit more insidious, in my view. Uh, whereas in Japan, tokusatsu superheroes aren't like general protectors. 
They have a defined mission or goal. And they also are very comfortable with endings. Uh, Super Sentai, for example, that um, they transform into Power Rangers, it's a completely new series every year with new people, new concept, new themes. They do 52 episodes and then they're done. That's the end. And then they move on to the next thing, which I think is in some ways almost complete opposite to Western superheroes, where uh, especially recently, things aren't allowed to die. It's always just this perpetual continuity and perpetual status quo. Uh, so I think in many ways, like there's visual influences to sort of like be inspired by that are very cool. And we try and, especially with Inferno Red, balance it out. Like there's a lot of like British boarding school, like mm-hmm. fantasy drama mixed in. Uh, I think there's a, a little bit of like American superhero comics too. Because I think I love Ultimate Spider-Man. I like to think I'm like mixing in a little bit of that. But there's just so many valuable ideas there that I think can be very instructive as long as you're interrogating those ideas and not just not lifting them whole cloth for the sake of it. Yeah. Well, given your background, you know, with Power Rangers, um, clearly your in-depth knowledge of it. Um, and writing the series, right? So there's a kind of an inescapable comparison between that and Inferno Girl and and, mm. and the whole verse to, to some extent. And I'm not at all trying to, to paint a picture of being derivative because I feel like it's very far from it. But given the parallels, how did you specifically try to separate those two? Was it, you know, it, it, it had to be very, you know, conscious. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's certainly no secret Although in some ways, almost a coincidence that uh, all of the massive verse creators, at least of the f- the four ongoing series, that being Radiant Black, Rogue Sun, In Front of Go Red, and The Dead Lucky, uh, all have a Power Rangers background. Have all written Power Rangers for Boom at some point. So right. we're all kind of from that, and I think in some ways that's just like baked into us now on some level. Uh, but I think we all wanted to sort of take what we loved about that but then evolve it and push it and, and find new ground with it. And I think in some ways it was very important that we all carve out our own space in the massive verse. Like Kyle's book is very much a story about being in your thirties and the struggle of being that like quote unquote late into your life and not having direction and the anguish of that. My book is very much a YA coming of age story. That's about the experience of teenagers in a world where things are already falling apart and they've got this massive responsibility without necessarily having the wisdom to deal with it. Over in Rogue Sun, that's a very much more like sort of fantasy, um, dark magic inspired book. And then in The Dead Lucky, we've got these themes of like technology encroaching and uh, veterans coming back from war. So it's sort of like we start from a similar foundation and then take it in different directions. And I know for me, one of the key things to do is rather than looking at Power Rangers, going back to the source, like looking at Super Sentai, looking at Kamen Rider and seeing what's instructive there. Because I think in a lot of ways, as much as it's obviously near and dear to my heart, Power Rangers, uh, a lot of it was lifted kind of unconsciously and, and not constructed in the best way, not necessarily learning lessons. Um, so it's what we wanted to do. And I think I, I certainly especially want to do is make sure that whatever we see that we identify is, oh, that could be useful. Make sure that we're understanding why and the mechanics of that. And then rather than just emulating it, going like, okay, what would happen if we put that piece here? 
what would that affect all of these other things of our own that we're working on and what would be the consequences of that? And then you chase that down and then that hopefully takes you to a different place. Well, are there, you know, subtle things that make tokusatsu tokusatsu, right? So these specific defining characteristics that you felt that just had to kind of be included in Inferno Girl kind of as an homage to the genre, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's definitely some uh, visual elements. Um, and I think Erica, who's our artist on the book, who I think is incredible, uh, and Igor Monte, who's our colorist, who, again, I feel like is genuinely one of the best in the business. I know I'm biased, but... No, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, crushing it. Uh, and both of them have a lot of... Uh, draw a lot of inspiration. Um, I think they're familiar with tokusatsu, but also consume a lot of anime. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that is an age thing, right? Like people of my generation and then even I think more so people younger than me, uh, that's just such a big part of their diet. And like the way that the expressiveness comes through, you know, like it comes through in the work just naturally. Uh, but I think that the idea of uh, in tokusatsu what's called henshin, which just means transformation. The idea of transformation is a really key part of the book. And we wanted to make sure that had a thematic meaning. Like, what does it mean to become something else past humanity and what you need to do to yourself to achieve that? So we want to make sure that we're not just, like, taking a mechanic and just replicating that, but in some ways it's very much the foundation of the story. Like, how do you really transform yourself when you need to um, is baked into the book. And, yeah, I mean, I think there are some other things coming down the line that I think I might sort of, yeah, Keep a little close to the chest now. No problem. But no spoilers. It, yeah, totally. But there's um, this as, as I was kind of alluding to before. There's so much to learn in, uh, from Tokusatsu storytelling that we're all big fans of. Um, and well, I guess one of the things I can say is that one of the lessons that I was talking about before in terms of endings is one that. We're very conscious of. Uh, we're going into this planning for an ending. We're not trying to build a perpetual IP machine that will like churn out content forever. Cassia has a mission, and there's going to be some, uh, you know, zigs and zags along the way. But this is not a uh, an indefinite story. We're gonna we're rocketing towards a conclusion, even from the start. Okay. Well. Toku kind of historically can be broken down into to two periods. You know, you have the monster boom starting with Godzilla, mm -hmm. and then you have the, the Henshin boom, which is more associated with Ultraman and all its derivatives kind of that you've been talking about. You know, both are mingled kind of in, in Inferno Girl. So it feels like a, a modern overlapping interpretation with a big infusion of diversity thrown in. So was that smash up kind of always the intent or just sort of the inevitability given your fondness for the medium? It's interesting because I feel like the latter part of it was very intentional and sort of baked in from the start. But the monster half of it, perhaps because I'm working in Ultraman with Kyle, I felt pretty covered. You know, it's <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know that I have anything to say in that space. Uh, but as we're developing the concept, the idea of literalizing and manifesting this darkness as, as a force that's attacking the city. I had some like conversations with Erica about it, and then she just started sketching these monsters. 
uh, before I'd, I'd really even said very much about it at all. And as soon as I saw them, I was like, well, look, we got to, we just got to, they look incredible. Um, and I think it is just that, like, us coming from similar inspiration points. So in some ways, as much as, you know, there's this big tokusatsu spread and I was trying to, like, push it in other directions. In other ways, uh, Erica naturally just, like, brought more of that back along. Um, and that's the beauty of, like, comics, right? It's all about collaboration. And so much of this book is me throwing out ideas and then having both Erica and I go actually respond to that. And then me go, like, oh, that's cool. Wait, I need to shift things. So we get more of that back in here. Um, so, yeah, some of it's planned. Some of it's a little bit more improvised. Well, I really enjoyed the, the extra material uh, from the Kickstarter you sent kind of as the review copy. You know, it mm. gave me a, a window into how your kind of creative visual process evolves as you and Erica are kind of working collaboratively. And you, you mentioned in that the, the script is something you treat as a letter to others on the team, which I thought was really fascinating. So mm. how, how great is it to be able to communicate in, in, in some ways very little and see what she comes back with? And, and this is not to, to kind of cut yourself short as a, as a storyteller, but you got a rock yeah. star there working with you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, the Erica was incredible before we started this. Uh, but I think that what Erica had kind of needed all her life was to be given a chance to cut loose. And I mean, there's a reason Erica's name is first on the cover. Like mm -hmm. she brings so much of herself. Um, and I, I knew that going into the book because I knew that I wanted to tell this story about Cassia, but I also knew that trying to tell a story about a teenage girl probably not going to feel super authentic coming from me. I probably don't have the perspective closest to that. Um, so I was looking for a female artist in particular, but Erica especially has this incredible sense of like fashion is part of it, but like youthful energy and how these characters hold themselves that I've never really seen before. Uh, and I think that's why with this book, especially it is very much, I sort of in the script form layout is kind of what I'm thinking. Let Erica just like create. And then from that, I'll go back and I'll do an entirely new version of the lettering script that throws out some of what I did before and sort of refreshes everything. So I'm better taking advantage of all that Erica's bringing to the table. Um, and I think that's like, that's good practice in making comics generally. And I do something think that it's something that's a little lost at bigger publishers, not through anyone's fault, but just because there's it's such an intense and fast-paced machine that they have to like keep the production rolling. But that back and forth, I think, gets you to the best um, product. And yeah, that's why I like to keep it a little looser in earlier stages. Well, as an aspiring colorist myself, I could spend weeks kind of studying Igor's highlights and shadow work. Um, it's it's just not a compliment to you to help you sell the book, but this is a this is a colorist at the top of the game, and in, in my opinion, uh, you know, it's it's, a, it's this weird balance. You know, it's vibrant enough to kind of fry your eyeballs, but subtle enough mm -hmm. to make, make sure those details aren't lost. Right? Um, it, it genuinely seems like magic to me. Uh, I think like the the colors themselves, as you said, are like incredible and incredibly inventive in the way. I, I go guides you around the page and knows how to bring emphasis. This is incredible. 
But the lighting and the shadows in particular, I, I'm not sure if until you, like, you sit down and consciously try and unpack it, you realize how incredible it is to be like providing this sense of volumetric space that is filled with light when it's, it's a flat, it's paper. You know, he's like bringing this sense of depth and this, this like, yeah, the, the light in particular just blows my mind uh, a little bit. So, yeah, I gasp every time I get a new page from Erica and then I gasp again when I get uh, the colors from Michael because it tr transforms radically at every step. Yeah, it's somebody who was formerly a, a theatrical lighting designer um, for mm. years as I was. I mean, I really appreciate that. And I always feel like that, that subtlety of light where it's coming from is something that is often missed by colorists. It's something I really try to, to convey. So I really, really appreciate yeah. his work. Well, I yeah, want to kind of dive into to Cassie as a character. One of the things I, I found really fascinating was this kind of flipping the script um, with her and her mom creating essentially an adult familial sidekick. So, yes. you know, why go that direction? I think in some ways because, I mean, I don't, don't want to sort of like be too on the nose about it, but in some ways, this book is about climate change and also like encouraging fascism and how we have this tendency to say, oh, the next generation will save us, young people will save us, where we've burnt the world and let things degrade in several ways to such an alarming extent. But then we have this uh, the audacity to be like, oh, but all right, these kids have such spirit and gumption and they're going to take care of it all. And like, they've got a, or no more planet. So I guess in, in that way, like when not wrong to ask them, but it also feels very, uh, I don't know, rude, <laughs> mean. And I think in some ways, Cassia's mom represents the, the best intentioned version of that, where uh, she's, very encouraging of her daughter, um, almost to an extreme extent. And I think in some ways, some of the bad stuff that happens in the book can kind of be laid at her feet uh, in terms of her perhaps in some ways naive sense of belief, but also the unfortunate reality is that there's a, a lot of truth to that as well in that in, in when you're up against the wall and the odds are against you, you need to believe that you're going to come through it, whether that's a reasonable belief or not, to have any chance at, at coming through it. So you need to have someone in your corner who's telling you that you can do it and sort of being that sort of like source of belief. Um, but I think it, when you sort of put that in the context of a mother and the daughter, I think, as you said, you get a very interesting dynamic where you have this uh, older figure who's got all of this this passion and energy and belief in um, someone younger who doesn't quite have that yet. Uh, I think it helps us get into the uh, this intergenerational drama that I think will explode out more as we get further into the book. Uh, but also I wanted to have a book about a, a very nice relationship between two women who, like, as different as they are, love each other very much. and have that be the core of the book to ground it. 
Um, so yeah, I think it was in some ways it's about the broader themes of the book, but also just about what's something that we haven't really seen before that we can bring to the book. Um, give obviously someone for Cassia to talk to because that's useful as someone who's uh, you know writing dialogue, but um, try and find a new way into it, which again is kind of always part of the mission here. We're always finding like new ways to approach this, so we're not just rehashing the classics. Well, as a um, as a person with an environmental science degree and who is a tree hugger, you know, bless you for your subtle, not so subtle messaging. So, <laughs> doing the very little that I reasonably can, I think. Yeah. So, what characteristics were important to infuse into Cassia as a character? I think because it is a story about belief. Uh, and a story about transformation, if you kind of like reverse engineer that problem because you want a protagonist that changes and evolves, you end up with a person who's very skeptical as the protagonist. Uh, and that, I, again, it felt very relatable to me because on my darker days, I'm extremely skeptical about the fate of the planet, the fate of society. Um, and again, I think... Uh, an amount of skepticism and worry is entirely warranted, especially for the generation of people that are coming into adulthood now, especially given the past few years and what they've been through. Um, so we, I, I think that was kind of the natural starting point for a character. And then building out the world and her experiences and, and why uh, a person would end up that way, sort of got to the story of Cassia's mother that you'll discover throughout the book and what she's experienced. Um, and and I think understanding that this power of belief that Cassie's mother have isn't really because of her experiences, but in some way despite of it. Um, and that's kind of where her power comes from. And then from there, I wanted to inject that inject that person in Cassia into a world that initially is full of hope. I think uh, Apex City is designed to be a place that could model a potential future. It's they're trying to do things in a different way. And we sort of hinted at it throughout the book, but it, it's a, a place where community is much more important, where the environment is much more respected. Um, the, the way energy and even food is integrated into society is a little different and a little better, but that's also the reason it was targeted and the reason that it's now in danger. And I think that gives Cassia kind of both the right amount of stakes and motivation because she came so close to having what she always wanted, which was a reason to believe. But now that that's all at risk, it's also validating in some ways that skepticism and doubt that she had that she would ever get to live a better life. And that puts her on the precipice of it. She has a lot of reasons to believe that it could go either way at this point, and suddenly it hinges on her and her ability to believe that she could save this beautiful small kernel of hope inside herself, and then also sort of the city that represents that. Well, no young superhero goes it alone. She's got her mom, but she also has some new school friends, Harriet and Lillian, who are kind of helping her navigate the chaos, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. We're seeing a lot of boarding schools. Boarding schools are kind of a thing. We've got X-Men, Hogwarts, Strange Academy. So what made it appealing to kind of use this sort of English boarding school overlay, you know, as a landmark in the project? 
I think they're just very useful narrative engines because when you're telling a coming of age story, you want to take someone out of their familial context of protection Mm -hmm. and inject them into a new world. And you kind of want them to live that experience wholly. You don't want them to be able to go back to the the familiar and to safety every night and every weekend, right? So sure. it, it forces them into that new world. And then it just sort of naturally provides a, a live-in cohort of supporting cast. There's people of their own age that they're around with, and then suddenly anything that happens to that place happens to this cohort, and it helps push those boundaries. So I think in some ways, like, a boarding school is a microcosm of the adult world, right? It's like a new world and a new society and a new community that you have to navigate away from your family. Uh, and then from there, obviously, you move out into the grander world. But I think it's it's just such a, like, uh, a useful uh, framing device, I think, for a coming-of-age story. Well, I'm always on board a good, vague, outer dark villain pulling the strings, you know, as the bad guy, in this case, Entropy, which is sort of unclear to me if Entropy is actually a thing yet or simply a concept, which really doesn't matter, you know, at this point, because Cassie has to deal with tangible threats, these yes. monsters <laughs> up and, and the griffin, right? Um, mm-hmm. So the griffin was really interesting to me, too, because he looks straight out of, like, the Silverhawks as a bad guy. But uh-huh. you've got... Are there kind of echoes of classic toku kaiju there? Or how do you want to go about kind of constructing the antagonist? Uh, there is a little bit, I think, especially in the, in the monsters in some way, which are, uh, ended up almost unintentionally being more classic toku creations. Uh, but in some ways, I think the griffin in particular is... Uh, a little more representative of a common writer situation where the antagonist is the, you know, the dark mirror of the hero in some ways, in, in the mechanical sense, in the sense that they are also someone who can henchin, who can transform, um, but using sort of opposite drivers in some way. And it does help to have that that tangible force uh opposing a hero so things aren't entirely conceptual um mm-hmm. and i think you know i have answers to the questions about entropy but they are they will be coming down the line as we go but it also means that we can have these conflicts conflicts be literalized uh by these avatars who transform to become more sort of like distilled representations of these forces mm-hmm. and then it in some ways it becomes a battle of of wills of uh, your ability to sort of channel these forces that you represent uh, and toku and anime as well present such brilliant joyous ways to uh, literalize that especially when you have a hero or a, a toku villain in this sort of mold uh, and there's something towards the end of the book that I'm like <laughs> trying to talk around so I won't spoil it <laughs> but it was one of those tools in the Toku tool set that when I knew the emotive character moment that I wanted to get to, I saw this opportunity to bring that in and use that to sort of literalize that moment. And I, I was really excited by it. 
And it's something you can only do if you if you have this setup that has in some ways um, already been felt out by uh, other creators in that space. Uh, I know that was a little vague. I'm hoping it'll no, no. I mean, people have read the book. I, I don't want you to give anything <laughs> away. We're we're enticing people. You know, that's exactly that's exactly. Goal. And this started as a a fully fleshed graphic novel on Kickstarter, which was wildly successful. You know, I, I'm curious about the the integration into the the Massiverse thing. You know, was it a timing thing? Was was it not fully fleshed out at the time? You know, where did it get from Kickstarter to Image and and that sort of thing? The reason we went to Kickstarter was, well, actually, it comes back to what I was talking about before about that ability to make something that is intuitive if you're not familiar with comics naturally. And the outcome of that was that I wanted to make a novel. Uh, I wanted to make something that was, well, I mean, we started off being 100, and thankfully with Kickstarter, we're able to expand that to 120, and even that felt a little tight for my liking. Um, but it was a single novel experience from start to finish. And that, you know, you can put six 20-page issues together to create 120 pages, obviously. But yep. if you're doing what I think you have a responsibility to do, which is write to the format, you'll end up writing a, a shape of a story with these arcs of these like peaks and drops that bounce up and down every 20 pages that don't necessarily fit the cadence of a novel. Mm -hmm. And like, I love the single issue format. Like my first image series self-made, I really went out of my way to make sure that every issue felt like its own self-contained element, but I didn't want to do that here. I wanted the freedom to write to the novel format. And initially we had the intention of not breaking it up at all. It was just going to be a novel. Uh, but funding that is very, very difficult. Um, trying to find the money for that, especially when, like, I knew I wanted Erica and Igor. They were fundamental to the process, but they've got to live their lives. Erica in particular needs to be able to live a human life only doing this for, like, near on a year, uh, which is incredibly expensive. And there was two ways out of that. Either I could take it to another publisher that would front us a bunch of money, but in return would also demand a lot of control, rightly, because mm -hmm. they've invested sure. a lot of money into it. Right. Or we could keep it creator-owned but not be able to fund it. Uh, and the way to sort of like navigate that dilemma was to go to Kickstarter and ask the community for help in funding it. And then once we'd sort of done that um, and had that tremendous response from the, from the community, we did realize that the acts of the book sort of naturally split up in broadly thirds so that we could probably release not single issues in the traditional sense, but these double-sized around 40-ish page uh, ish issues to the market that um, probably won't feel typically like a comic issue, but will hopefully be satisfying experiences enough to sort of justify the cost without sacrificing the novel nature of the book, which is sort of the primary goal in my view. Uh, and it, that was all about just like making sure that by the end of it, we had a novel that could go on bookstore shelves as well as comic bookstore shelves, that if you've never read a comic book before, you could pick it up and it would be intuitive and understandable and you could find your way into it. Um, and yeah, I think it, it, in some ways it's meant that it's been 
not an entirely unique format, but in uh, I think for superheroes, something of a unique format in terms of how it came to be and now how it's going out to market. Uh, and I'm hoping that can inspire other people to be able to take this direction as well, where you can do novels, but also do serialized novels. I think, uh, like, I, I think DC has been doing some great YA-focused superhero OGNs, but mm-hmm. they're also one-offs, which I've never quite understood either because I feel like the Marvel movies are out there showing the power of long-form storytelling and sort of connected universes in a way that's easily digestible. And I feel like we're kind of all missing a trick if we're not using that opportunity to invite people into comics in a way that, um, because like comics is where all these ideas come from and should be where these ideas are being pushed forward and a lot more bold and ambitious. But if we can bring those audiences, especially young people who are like finding their love of this into it in a way that they recognize and is accessible and, you know, they can find their passion for it, then we can grow the comic community and make everyone more successful. Um, so, yeah, I know that was kind of a long, complicated answer, but it was a a very fundamental part of creating this project was finding a new way to do it because we weren't happy with uh, the available options. Yeah, I really enjoyed the the pacing of it. And as the dad of a teenage kid, I can affirmatively say that that younger generation that we are trying to entice into comics enjoy things in a more long form formatting than waiting yeah. every month on 20 to 28 pages of single issue. Um, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, um, we're seeing manga like just explode because it's, it's just much more long form. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I feel like if you're a publisher and you don't see Marvel movies, absolutely exploding, dominating the planet, and then also see, the incredible sales success of the manga format and bookstores and don't go, well, how can we make those two things? One thing, perhaps you're missing a beat. Um, yep. So yeah. And like, I don't expect Infotable Red to make a switch. Um, that is, especially for creator of a book, that's always a phenomenal long shot, but I do hope that it brings in some, new readers and it helps grow the pool of people who love this stuff as much as well one of my hopes is that it is definitely going to be printed on glossy or semi-gloss paper because matte paper would not do that artwork justice it would like it jumps so mm-hmm. yeah so yeah, hopefully we're um we are still talking about formats for the both the single issues and the mass market trade paperback um, and again, because this is all a like, part of it is at image, you have to make all of these choices yourself. Um, I, uh, image will help guide you and inform you of the options, but it's all in your control. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have to make these calls. And because of the interesting way that we've chosen to do this, there are a lot of questions. And it looks like, for example, the you know what we're calling single issues will actually be perfect bound. They'll have a spine because of the size of them, um, which will make them unique in their own way so yeah there's a there's a lot of considerations of like how do we do this right given that we are in uh in some ways blazing a new trail well what else are you up to that you can talk about of course well, okay what can i talk about i oh, as i mentioned sort of before i'm working on the ultraman series of series with kyle higgins we're co-writing that uh so far we have 
The Rise of Ultraman and The Trials of Ultraman out in trade. Currently being released in single issues is The Mystery of Ultra 7, which will hit trades soon. From there, we're doing a Marvel Ultraman crossover where the heroes of our Ultraman series will be interacting with some heroes from the Marvel Universe. So that'll be a lot of fun. And then hopefully we'll continue. Uh, it's actually similar to Inferno Go Red and a lot of our massive stuff. Kyle and I pitched these the Ultraman saga with a beginning and an end, a grand arc. And who knows if we'll ever get to finish it, but we're, uh, we're on that journey. So we'd love for people to follow us there. Um, Inferno Go Red, obviously, as discussed. Mm-hmm. And then there is some other stuff coming that I can't talk about yet, but I am kind of excited about. Uh, Good. Well, yeah. I'm always uh, used to uh, hearing I can't talk about it yet. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think it's just the nature of the business. We have said, though, that there is another Supermassive, another crossover coming uh, next year, I think in April or May. So, yeah, that's the, that's the next chance to see the, the Massiveverse collide together. Okay. Well, where can people find you online? I know you're on Twitter, but, like, God knows what's happening there. Yeah, I am on Twitter. I am Matthew Groom on Twitter, Matthew with one T, for however long that place holds together. Uh, <laughs> and other than that, uh, I have a website, which is mattgroom.com, where I have a contact box. You can reach me there. I think that's probably it for the moment. Unfortunately, I don't have the artistic talent or the pretty face to justify an Instagram. So that uh, will probably be it for now. Well, lastly is my hustle segment. So um, my background, working with artists, being a professional artist for over a decade myself, you know, art is a hustle. So this is something I started to kind of help. It's aspiring creators who are struggling to kind of give them a nugget of wisdom from your own journey that could either inspire them or help them avoid maybe a common pitfall. So what do you got for me? Something I like to say, because I've done a few breaking the comics panels and um, we, we touched a little bit about on that when I talked about the podcast. And I think my path into comics is so uh, ridiculous, almost like vaudevillian, that there's no way anyone's going to replicate it. So I think there's any wisdom to be gained there. But what I do like to tell people is that particularly if you're from a working class background, you will find this process to be exhausting. Um, breaking into comics and getting to a point where, well, yeah, getting to a point where you can fund, where you could live entirely off the, the wages provided by comics isn't just like getting to play in the NBA. It's like getting to play on, you know, one of the top three teams of the NBA in terms of how like statistically unlikely it is. So it's a massive struggle and it's a lot of work. And if you find yourself exhausted, you're coming home from the end of a long shift at your day job and you feel like you're too tired to work on comics uh, and you're, you're losing a sense of hope, I guess I'd say, like, don't let anyone tell you that it's your fault and you're not self-motivated enough. It is absolutely hard. It is exhausting. And it will be great if it pays off, but you need to be doing it for the love. You need to be able to find a little bit of joy in doing what you're doing day to day because the chances of it paying off financially are so, um, yeah, so tiny. So 
just give yourself permission to not feel okay sometimes. Give yourself permission to feel exhausted. It'll take as long as it takes. Um, and all you can do is surround yourself with supportive people in the community, um, share how you're feeling, and know that if it feels like a battle, it's not just you. It's, it is hard. And, yeah, I've, I've certainly had that. Um, it's getting a little better now, but, like, I've gone through that process of working full-time at a day job and then all of my other working hours are into comics and it is bad for your health um, and <laughs> bad for your mental health. So, yeah, don't feel bad if that's getting to you, I guess is what I like to say. And if anyone's out there telling you you just need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, find the inner strength to push forward, then they're probably not speaking from a place of experience. They don't know what it is like to try and um, push through while surviving on a low wage. So a, a little bleak perhaps, but hopefully a, a relatable bit of realism that will make you feel okay with how things are tracking to you. I really appreciate the realism. Matt says, normalize and embrace the pain. Got it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> don't like, you know, invite it. Uh, don't, um, you, you don't want to make it see, like make it a point of pride. It's not great that we have to suffer, but if you are suffering, unfortunately that's not unheard of and it's not your fault. So before I go, the, the Power Rangers podcast, what's the specific name of it? I want to make sure to include it in the show notes. Yeah, it's the Ranger Danger podcast. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and most other podcast places, not Spotify, I don't think, but most others. Uh, we're currently in the middle of Power Rangers Ninja Storm, which I think is like seven or eight Power Rangers series in. But yeah, there's almost nine years, no, a bit over nine years of content, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes, if that's something that you'd be interested in. Well, if I've done my job here, everyone should be ready to go pick up Inferno Girl Red. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Honestly, I'm kind of bummed that I missed the Kickstarter. Um, I got into comics, actually, I think, right after, you know, that came. Or I should say I got back into comics right after mm. that kind of was a thing. So, but it's, it's a beautiful presentation. You got a hell of a team working with you. So, um, and it, it's a great YA book. I, my son's out of town, but I can't wait to, for him to get home and I'll be like, here you go, man. This is great. That's my dream. Honestly, I'm so glad to hear that because all I want is to have something that you can give to um, your teenage children and be like, I hope you think this rocks because I think it rocks and maybe we can talk about why it rocks once you're done with it. Fantastic. Well, Matt, thanks so much for hanging out with me today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, I have really very much enjoyed our chat. So thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, this is Byron O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.